open season. All her life it was the old house, the place where the young man suddenly appeared one fall evening, lit a fire, made a home. You see those places from the road in that part of Georgia, the familiar T-shaped gable-roofed farmhouse of the 20s and 30s, whitewashed frieze boards and busted six over six pane windows along the rear sleeping porch, always with the same severe beauty that feels like an affront of some kind. When she was a child, her aunt and uncle used the house for hay storage, preferring to live in the double wide they set up at the back of their tract farther off the main road. And so the house was an outbuilding to her or a piece of the landscape, at least until she discovered him living there. And suddenly in the space of one evening walk, it was a house again, his house. She hadn't intended to spy on him, had never considered herself a voyeur, if that's the right word for it. But then all it takes is the slightest pause on an evening walk down the wooded hill behind your home. And if the time is right and the light has just finished making its slow reversal, releasing from the glass the outside world, taking in the interior, you can look as long as you want to without being seen. And in pausing, even for a few seconds, you become something else, someone else. No longer a woman walking, she became a woman looking in, waiting there in the dimness of the tree line. She often walked near the old house to move along the edge of the field, and she was practically in the backyard when she accepted that the light she was seeing was coming from the house itself. It had never had electricity, and yet every room was lit from within as though something miraculous had happened, as though time had curved back on itself. And there he was painting in the living room, his back to her. There was an oversized fire in the center, the center chimney, who would build such a large fire in autumn, waste so much fuel? And small pieces of cardboard filled the empty window panes of the sleeping porch. At first, she thought maybe he was a squatter, but the electricity, his truck parked in the drive, the brand new trash bins neatly arranged. No, not a squatter. This man was living here, a new neighbor, a young man. Oh, you mean Mr. Scott, said her uncle over the phone. She couldn't believe they hadn't mentioned that someone had bought their frontage property. Can you believe he wanted to live in that old rat's nest? He teaches up at Regents in Augusta, wanted to be somewhere quiet, said he got tired of all the noise. He's real nice though, kind of shy, her uncle went on. German, I think, he said. Hold on. She could hear her aunt scolding and correcting him in the background. Or Spanish, hold on. <laughs> Again, her aunt was hollering something. He moved down here from New York, you know. You want to talk to Marma? No, she said. She needed to get dinner going before Bo came in. At least get a pot of water boiling. As long as something was happening on the range, he wouldn't bother to ask what. She discovered the next week when the new mailbox was installed on the main road right beside theirs that his name was actually McMaster, Scott McMaster. She had been watching him the whole week and had her ideas. McMaster, a noble-sounding name, an old name, probably from an old Irish family, probably Catholic. She imagined a young Mr. Scott McMaster in a Catholic boarding school, a nest of beautiful tall brick buildings surrounding him at recess, walking home along the streets lined with brownstones. Scott McMaster from New York, now living in her uncle's outbuilding, the old house. Scott fixed the windows that first week and the house seemed more vivid with light at dusk when the white tail and other crespicular animals came out in their watchfulness. 
Inside, from her angle up in the hill in the woods, she could see a large dining room with a plastic liner layout across the floor. He was painting the room a shade like seafoam, a soft, calm color. Through the big French doors of the living room, she could also see a sofa and one side table, the only furniture in the entire downstairs of the house. Could this really be his only furniture, one sofa and one side table? No his and hers set of reclining leather chairs? No TV? There were piles and piles of books around the base of the sofa and an old-looking brass lamp with the brass arm and a brass shade over the bulb. The kitchen alcove was also uncurtained, along with another small octagonal window that was set so high it was useless to her, except when Scott was on the stairs, once going up slowly with a book in hand, another time coming down in a lilt, like a child in his endless variety of plaid shirts, while the water came to a boil on the stove. Through the alcove, she watched him pour tea, Tea, she thought, my God, not sweet tea, hot tea. <laughs> and he drank it all night long, cup after cup of it, it seemed. She could remember the last time, sorry, she couldn't remember the last time she'd had any hot tea. Maybe she never had, and maybe she'd only seen it set out, those little white bags beside the church maker, um, beside the church coffee maker during a Wednesday night church dinner in the basement beneath the worship hall. But she had never had someone invite her in and say, would you care for a cup of tea? And not mean the sweet kind piled with fracturing cubes of ice. And all of this, this bright diorama, opened up toward the innocence of the empty woods, just as her own house did. So there was no need for blinds or curtains. These lives were being shared with the woods, with the watchful things their hearts up in their eyes, their brains in their eyes, nothing but eyes, their senses keen with curiosity, with otherness. These lives were public domain, and what was wrong with that? She had also not planned on making a habit of this, but when she found the old house lit up night after night and someone moving in the light with such a different life than her own, it never occurred to her that she should not stay a bit. Catch her breath is all. It was like standing before a display case, the thing inside emitting meaningful silence, and something else too. And she felt obligated to understand these feelings, to welcome something in, to sanction the progress Scott made on the interior, to ratify the making of tea, the reading of books, whatever was happening, it needed a native, she thought. She felt to say yes, to say, make yourself at home. <clears throat> The trap was an old coil spring snare her brother had found at a garage sale. Tom had it boiling in a big pot of water when she and Beau walked in. He was inviting them over often now that he was remarried. It was important to him, he said, that they love on his new wife, make her feel like family. But did they even feel like family anymore, like brother and sister? It was an excuse, at least, to get out of the house, and even Beau recognized they needed to do something together occasionally. She could tell as soon as they got in the door that her brother Tom was already a little tipsy, still uncomfortable with visitors. Can I get you something, Bo? No, I'm good, Bo said. You sure now? Tom already had a bottle of beer in his hand, was already opening it. Yeah, all right, Bo said. Do you have any herbal tea? Eva asked. <laughs> herbal tea, her brother laughed. Do I look like Mar Madame Laura? 
Madame Laura was the fortune teller at Lansardis who also fixed cellular phones. Tom, Tom invoked her anytime he needed to speak of an unpatriotic way of life. <laughs> Eva's on another, another little health kick, Bo said, slowly leaning in to stick up for her around Tom. Goes through boxes of tea a week now, takes walks every, every day too. But Tom had already quit listening. Bo took a bright Cheeto out of the big plastic salad bowl sitting in the center of the kitchen table and dipped it into the ranch. This was her world. She could not believe it suddenly, this world of oversized children. How had she not noticed any of this before, this lack of care that surrounded her, the adolescent appetites, and so much plastic cutlery, paper napkins they folded carefully into triangles at the dinner table as though that made them classy. Scott used saucers, for God's sake, saucers. <laughs> I'd like some hot tea too, said the new wife, Kelly. We probably have some Lipton in there somewhere, said Tom, softening now that he saw this as a chance for the girls to love on one another. Tom was holding the trap up by the chain in front of his youngest son. He must have just lifted it from a pot of boiling water because the steam crawled heavily up the chain as it spun before the boy's face. Duke one and three quarters, Tom said, offset jaws so it's harder to open. I'm showing Ty here how it's done. We're gonna get us some yotes this year. Gonna skin them out and make the boy a hat, maybe a vest. Coyotes, she said. They're real bad this year. That was true, apparently. The news had run a story about the invasive hybrid animal that had come down from Canada. Someone's cat had been nabbed. It was an open season. You don't need a license or something? Not on private property, you don't. Tom took a big slug of his expensive beer and went back to the kitchen counter where he and Tyler were watching a YouTube video of a man holding up the same trap, explaining its features, how to lower the jaws, flip the dog into the locked position. Behind them on the range, the big pot of water sat steaming and beside it, Kelly, in a gray stretched out tank top, the skin of her face looking flush from the heat. Still not much of a talker, Kelly, still a guest in this house. One bright pink bra strap had drifted down across the cap of her shoulder and even noticed the way Tyler kept looking over at it, watching its slow descent until it hung in a silky loop off the side of her upper arm. She was easily 10 years younger. Eva hadn't asked Tom how much younger yet. It had all happened so fast anyway. Why do we cook them? asked Tyler. To get off the oil and anything the yotes could smell. Oh, said the boy. She saw Tom back behind her house after work the very next day. In the distant reach of her headlights, his eyes, the green unpupiled bulbs of an animal as he walked out of the sloped woods at dusk. He was passing over the top, he was passing over the top of the hill where the earth was white and sandy, the malnourished scrub oaks and blackjack like miniature models of real trees. Her heart was pounding a little seeing him coming from behind her house. What was he doing down there? He had no business down there. What had he seen? Her own footprints? Did he find the binoculars she had taken from the garage and left on the tree limb? Tell me you didn't put that thingy on my property, she said, slamming the sliding door of the van. Offense to best defense, she long ago decided when men were concerned. It's ours, he said, our property, the voice spoken twice and having two syllables both times he pronounced it. Not when it's behind your house, it isn't. 
It is. It's the truth. What's wrong with behind your house? She didn't care about the trap being on her property. She just didn't want it down there. And she especially didn't want her brother making consistent trips to check on it. I've seen more yoke tracks down there. They use the bottom of that wash as a path to and from the river. And what if some dog or something steps in it? She wanted to make sure she didn't step in it. And then came the words her brother had inherited from their father. Okay, ding dong. Tell me why a dog would come watsing up the bottom of the wash. This little phrase of his, ding dong, the human belfry he liked to become when he felt superior, could be the soundtrack of all their conflicts. Hey, ding dong, Tom, Tom once called to her across the backyard of her aunt and uncle's house. He was lying inside the scoop of Aunt Marma's tremendous satellite dish, the one that was as wide as the trailer itself. She was nine and Tom was 12. He'd been lying in the dish for 20 minutes waiting for her with their uncle's BB gun, and she had been hunting for him in the yard with the gravel rake raised up like a club. She hadn't planned on hitting him with the rake, just making him apologize, and she knew he couldn't have gotten very far. The whole episode had begun inside and had spilled outside where it ex escalated, as all things did outside with them, the fresh air undomesticating their small violences, upping the ante. When it started, she'd been pretending to sleep on the sofa, pretending she was snoring, and Tom had told her to shut up because Family Matters was on. It was the only show he ever watched, and so she snored even louder, and when she didn't stop, he came over and spit in her open mouth and bolted for the door, laughing so hard he could barely get the latch open. She threw open the screen door just as Tom turned the corner behind the shed and disappeared. That's when she saw the gravel rake leaning against the side of the house and yelled out to him that she was going to claw his face off. <laughs> the adults might have intervened at this stage, but it was game day, and so they were all in the TV room at the other end of the trailer. She had made two trips around the yard when she heard him say the words, Hey, ding dong. And then she heard the wet, springy plunk of his daisy BB gun somewhere off to her right and felt a tooth explode in the back of her mouth. She thought, a, she thought a wasp had stung her on the cheek, right where the tiny ball entered her face, just a few inches below her ear, where it shattered one of her top molars. She worked a few pieces of the tooth forward with her tongue, wondering what strange fragments of something hard had somehow gotten into her mouth, and why the wasp had stung her, wondering why it looked like bits of tooth were in her hand. Nothing was making sense because the pain was up inside her face, way up behind her eye, like the warm, bright light that vibrates and crawls along the bottom of a pool in summer, all up and down the side of her face. Then she was on her knees, the rake on the ground beside her, and when she looked up, she saw Tom being drugged out of the satellite dish by his hair. Her uncle was standing Tom up and striking him hard on the pants seat as the boy arched his back in exaggerated pain and her mother was standing in the doorway looking at her with a curious expression like, why, child, why are you kneeling like that? And why would you be crying? And what are you holding out to me now? What gift is in your palm? She remembered feeling gratified when Tom got two horrible whippings with a switch, one from their father and then another from their uncle, all for getting into the satellite dish and knocking out the signal on game day. It was only later that they realized that he had shot her and by then, all the men had headed over to another house to catch the last quarter.
Eva came down the hill through the woods that next evening, wondering what progress Scott had made on the kitchen, what hardware he might choose for the cabinets. She was relishing the full arrival of fall now, the rich mineral of leaf bed mixing with the hunt camp fires upwind along the Savannah River, the slurred, vital smell of smoke drawing across the country as the men dressed out the day's deer. She felt closer to the fall and its landscape than she had felt in a long time. All this dusk light watching and listening, the witness in her expanding, making up for lost time. Learning to watch Scott was training her to watch other things now too. In fact, she wasn't sure if it even mattered anymore what she was watching as long as it was something real. The lights from the house had just come in sight and she was imagining the way Scott had bent his knees the day before while moving the paint roller up and down the walls Bending his knees, she thought, good young knees, instead of leaning over like most older men do, their ass cracks hanging out. But suddenly that image was gone, and she realized that she had been halted by something below her on the ground. A flash of tan fur between the trees, very low to the ground. The earth around the trap had been worked up by a great day-long struggle. A perfect ring of mud the length of the trap's chain, and inside the ring, the dog lay exhausted, belly down with one paw crossed gallantly over the other, as if the little trap the device had become in the end a cherished thing. It could have passed for a coyote, she guessed, very mangy and covered in mud, but it was just a dirty golden retriever, and then she saw it was, in fact, her aunt's retriever, Sandy. <clears throat> Another mess her brother had made, somehow ending up on her. How she wanted to kill him. But she could just hear him already. He wouldn't even care about the dog. So what was you doing down there, he would say. She tried for a good ten minutes to open the trap. Hold on, Sandy, she said. Hold on, sweetie. But the dog kept jerking it out of her hands, and so she went home and got a shovel and dug the stake out and carried the wet dog all the way up the sloped woods into the back of her minivan. Now she was cruising hard down Highway 23, heading to the emergency vet in Augusta, with poor Sandy standing up in the back of the van, where she stomped the trap into the metal floor and whimpered at each turn. She remembered the way in the kitchen that night at her brother's, the trap had looked like a little mechanical crab resting on the bottom of the big pot of water, the tiny bubbles clinging to it. Lie down, Sandy, she said. Sandy, down. No one was at the front desk at the emergency vet. There was a trail of blood across the tile leading back to a pair of swinging doors. A nice pool of it by her feet just inside the door of the lobby. She was holding Sandy in her arms, her shirt covered in mud. Hello, she called. A dog was barking somewhere in the back, a shrill sound against the hard clinical surfaces. Suddenly through the double doors came a spaniel with an arrow sticking out of its stomach. A tech following with a pair of wire cutters, a vet behind her, another tech. It was a practice arrow with a field tip, bright orange fletching and a blinking LED knock still on. He was down, said the tech. You thought he was down, said the vet. They did not look up at each other as she stood there holding Sandy, the trap chain, the trap chain hanging by her right knee. They passed back through the doors, carrying the gutshot dog, and she was alone again in the waiting room, more bright pools of blood on the floor, the fluorescent strips glowing in each one. She lowered Sandy to the floor and went over to the desk to the desk and waited. 
Then she thought then she thought she would call Tom. Why should she even put this on her credit card? He should get up here and meet her and at least pay for this. She could barely admit to herself that her anger at Tom was not really about the coyote trap at all. The thing with the trap and the dog was like a handle that allowed her to grasp the real anger, which extended beneath their history as siblings, beneath their current relationship, way down into herself. She was angry that Tom was divorced and happy. It was the combination that made her feel sick when she thought about it. All her married life, those 12 years with Bo, divorce had been a recurring ideation, always there, somewhere in the mind, lurking, but she had rejected it each time. She told herself that real joy would emerge only from her sheer devotion, the mystery of simply continuing on in the thing they had built together, the little ark they had entered two by two. Or maybe just in relishing all that time, 12 years already, 12 years, and yet something had always kept her from wanting to have children with him, and the number of years had become an abstraction to her, the cold accrual of time, and it did nothing in moments like these to raise her spirits. All the while, Tom, her brother Tom, seemed joyous, his fatherhood still meaningful to him, his life mysteriously unwrecked. Yes, this was the thing that came up from the depths of her if she pulled on it long enough. Tom arrived looking angry. Over the phone, he had asked, does it even need a vet? Is his leg broke? It's bone is showing, Tom, she had said. It's bone. She had nearly yelled into her phone, letting the word bone ring into the waiting room around her. And then she said, you know what, Tom? If you ain't coming down here, just say so, but this is your mess. He was wearing his work overalls and smelled like paper mill sulfur when he came through the door. He still looked happy, though, like he could like he could come up with a grin at this very moment. Nothing seemed to faze him. Tom bent down then with a surprising tenderness and took the trap off the dog's leg. Sandy watched Tom as he walked the trap out of the sliding glass doors to toss it in the back of his truck. And the dog looked mournful even, licking the spot and watching Tom as if she missed the device. Eva thought she knew the feeling. Yes, the impossible feeling. Tom came back and holding his dip Tom came back in holding his dip cup just under his chin like a microphone, a one liter of Mountain Dew with the dark litter scattered inside the green plastic. All his life, she thought, pleasure to pleasure, having a dip, take, taking the edge off. Why not? Did they see it yet? He asked. They haven't seen us at all. No, did they see the trap? No, they haven't even come out here yet. Look, Eva. I don't have a license to put out traps, so we need to get our story straight. Are you kidding me? She said, I'm not doing this. She handed Tom the leash. He didn't take it. He held his palms out to her. Eva, hold on. I'm not doing this, she said. Look, just hang on. I could get fined here. He was speaking real low, using his sweet brotherly voice now, and she hated him a little more. She could smell the bright winter green of his cope beneath the rich-smelling, long-cut tobacco, and it always reminded her of their father, of the way his car smelled when he had smokeless after a church dinner. When Sandy was sedated, the vet asked where they found the dog and whether or not they knew whose trap it was. She let Tom handle that one. She looked at him. Go on, then. 
It came up to my door with it dragging it along the ground, Tom said. Must have pulled it out of the ground somewhere, all this rain. Lucky thing the ground is so soft or it probably would still be out there somewhere. The vet looked at her as if he needed her to corroborate, which is when she turned and walked out of the room. She could hear Tom elaborating on the tale as she left. I brought it along with me if you need to see it. The stake and all was pulled right up. As they stood in the parking lot afterwards, she surprised herself by thanking him for coming. She felt a little bad now about how worked up she'd been. She also realized that she didn't have a good reason for going back there, down in the wash, at least not a reason she wanted to talk with, about with Tom. And she knew that he wanted to ask, but that this was his chance to get away without getting in trouble. But of course, there would be Marma now to reckon with. Do you mind if we tell Marma the same? He nodded toward the vet's house where inside Sandy was spending the night getting an IV to rehydrate and sleeping off the anesthesia. Whatever, she said. Okay, be good girl, he said, as though already reminding her of their deal. All right, she said. On her drive home, she called Marma to let her know the good news. She had been looking forward to this part. Her aunt would be so happy to know the dog was okay. Marma, how you doing? I'm fine now, who's this? She could hear the high-pitched squeal of Marma's hearing aid as the receiver covered it. She could hear her moving the phone over to her other ear. Marma, it's Evangeline. Oh, Evangeline, well, come on, I'm up for a little while. No, I'm heading home. Okay, sugar. She was already starting to hang up the phone. Marma hated the phone. Marma, yeah, I'm trying to tell you something. Oh, what's that? Guess who we found this afternoon? Who's that? Sandy. Your dog, we found her this afternoon. No, she's here. Hold on. Kelly heard the receiver land hard on the side table. She could hear Marma calling for the dog, making sure. Yeah, she's right here. Eva felt a little woozy hearing this, like she needed to get off the phone. She hadn't thought to ask the vet if the dog had a chip, had just known it was Sandy, but now it occurred to her, it was his dog. It had to be his dog. Though she hadn't seen a dog in the house, she knew it was somehow his, and then she thought that it didn't matter. She should still go by his house, to be sure. Now she imagined his gratitude, as if it was his, when she told him that she had taken it quickly to the vet, and that it was fine, a little dehydrated maybe, and sleeping off the sedatives. She decided to head straight there, but then considered that she might like to clean herself up a bit. It had been a long evening, and she hadn't planned on meeting him, not tonight, maybe not ever, though she had hoped that um, he would be there one night, just standing down there, as if waiting for her. But now she realized that yes, this was better. This was what she had been hoping for. She stopped at the Exxon station and went in and stood in front of the mirror and took a hard look at herself. It wasn't that bad, really. These were her favorite jeans, that was luck, and the blouse was dirty, but a good color for her, a dark blue, this will work, she thought, this is good. She pulled her hair back into a ponytail, only a little gray showing in the brown right along the part. And that couldn't be helped. She hadn't considered how young Scott might be. She hadn't thought it would matter, seeing how she had never planned to speak to him. But now it occurred to her that he might be quite young, so young as not to see her, not to give it any proper time. But that couldn't be helped either. She didn't even know if she wanted that to be seen that way. She just knew she wanted to stand in front of him, to hear the sound of his voice, 
to be invited inside the house even, or at least from the door, to see the sofa there and the side table, the lampstand, perhaps even glimpse the title of a book or two. When she returned to the car, she noticed Beau had called, and only then did she realize how much time had passed since finding the dog. It was a little past nine. She put the phone in the glove box and flicked on her high beams and drove the tall fields of evenly set pines pressing in on both sides of her like a colonnade, the high watt xenon of the paper mill glowing in her rear view. She was going somewhere new and old, she thought. She was a welcome wagon, the patron saint of accidentally trapped dogs. Scott's gravel drive seemed new, though how often she had driven up this narrow road past the old house. She remembered the square bales piled up to the wood slat ceilings, the hallway slick with a thin layer of straw so she could run and slide across them and stir up a thin layer of smell. Very warm in the summer, the air heavy and full of hay chaff swirling up as her uncle and her father brought in the bales off the back of the truck and stuck them against the door frames, bringing them through the hallway and threw them high up into the stacked wall where her brother often crouched, tugging them invisibly back into that space above. She rounded the last corner of the drive, only to see Bo standing in the side yard of the old house beside Scott, both of them looking off into the woods. A patrol car was in, drive, was in the drive out front, a flashlight in the hand of the man with the wide-brimmed highway patrol hat, the light sweeping around in the woods, Bo and Mr. Scott were looking into her high beams now, Bo's hand up to block the headlights, his face so pale and formless, the bland, lost face of a baby, she thought. She wanted to slap it just for being there. When she killed the lights, Bo was walking toward her. Scott was staying put, turning away from them to watch the light carving out the darkness of the wash, his hands turned up over his hips, thumbs over his front pockets. How to describe it, seeing Bo there, like another trap had been sprung. It was the empty space beneath her foot when walking the stairs at night and arriving at the top, only to feel one leg still sinking strangely through nothing. If it were a taste, then it tasted like a shattered molar, like the root of a tooth exposed. If it were a song, it went ding-dong. The till, the tongue, the trigger, the dog flying back, the jaws free to rise up around her forever and ever, the whole thing like a betrayal, a trick some man had played on her. As she sat in the car, shifting the transmission into park, she saw behind her husband the deputy sheriff walking out of the woods, the flashlight in his right hand, an empty can of Purina in the other. He had her binoculars around his neck. I didn't think you got my message, Bo said. Well, here I am, she thought. That was luck, she thought. But the binoculars? Well, you didn't need to come out here. I just wanted you to know where I was. Well, I found the dog, she said, so I figured I should come. She stepped out of the car and found herself a little bit dizzy. Yeah, Scott here got a call from the vet and they told him you brought it in and they gave him our landline. Apparently the dog had a chip in it. Scott was walking up now and her husband's voice was fading. She thought he looked older up close, but smaller, much smaller, as though the windows had magnified his presence like the glass of a round fishbowl. Was he her height? 
He had on one of those flannels she had often seen him in, a polite look on his face, a desire to see things go well here. She liked that. Men around here never needed to make friends because there weren't any to make that weren't family. And so they didn't know how to look up even or how to say hello, hardly socialized. Scott, this is Evangeline. She brung your dog in. Bo's accent, oh Lord, it seemed almost unintelligible to her now. What must it sound like to Scott? She remembered liking his voice when they met almost 18 years ago. She was a child. Eva, she said, extending her hand slowly, giving him time to see it. Sorry to bring you out here this late, he said. We're trying to figure out if there's any more traps back there. There was no hint of German in the voice, no hint of anything. Maybe the story about him teaching German was wrong anyway. The story had probably evolved across an entire county of postal workers. There was only one, she said, and my brother put it back there. I didn't know where he put it, but I assumed it was on our property. I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry about this. It was right on the property line, as far as I can tell, said the officer. I'm so sorry about this, really, Eva said again. I just feel awful. And I wouldn't have brought and I would have brought the dog here, but I thought it was my aunt's. It didn't have a collar. It felt good saying all this, throwing her brother under the bus this time. For once in her life, sorry, for once in his life, something would come back around to him. For once, just dear God, don't let Bo recognize those binoculars. How had the deputy even seen those? Wouldn't he have been looking toward the ground? She pursed her lips together, just felt a touch of dizziness, a touch of nausea. And how had she not seen that he had a dog after all those evenings. How could she have missed the dog? I'm watching or supposed to be watching it for a friend, Scott said. Oh, now I just feel awful, Ava said. A girlfriend, she thought, of course. How'd she get out, Bo asked. Honey, dogs get out, she said. Well, I, I know, I didn't mean anything by it, never mind. No, it's fine, Scott said. I've been working on the house some. But before he could go on, the officer pulled the binoculars from around his neck. He, he let them hang from his hand. He was going to say something about them. It's not a misdemeanor on private property unless someone presses charges, and you can decide within 12 days if you'd like to or not. DNR will contact Tom about the infraction with the trap. Probably either Andy or Bill, and I think they both know Tom. Are we sure there aren't any more traps back there? We're pretty sure he only had the one. Are these any of yours? The deputy held the binoculars up to Scott. Bo cut a look over to Eva. I think, Bo said, those might actually be Tom's. Bo took them, pretended to inspect them, pretended his own initials were not gorged into the barrel just above the focus knob, pretended they were not the same binoculars his father had given him for his birthday a few years ago with a little bird book. Where was they, Bo asked, on a limb down there? On my property, Scott asked. That tree right there, the officer said, as if they could sense which one. Yeah, these is Tom's, Bo said, turning them once more before his face, playing it a little too hard now. Soon they had given Scott the address to the 24-hour vet, and he was heading down the drive toward the main road. The deputy was in his cruiser in the middle of a big three-point turn. See you home, Bo asked. Yeah, she said. Neither moved. Do you remember when this house was full of hay, Bo said, and me and you and Tom slept in here after prom with that snaggletooth girl of his? Yes, she said, I do. I was just thinking about that. She remembered how well she had slept that night beside Bo, their first night together, in fact. 
the silky interior of his rented tux against her ear, the smell of his sweat and the boozy smell of the hay mixing into something that made her feel alive, the cheap champagne burning up her head, the room turning slightly, but knowing that her brother would come up with something to cover for them both the next morning, that he would be her alibi and she would be his when they came into the house together at daybreak, their father sitting in his faded blue bathrobe at the kitchen table, nervously stirring his coffee, looking like hell. Bo was laughing now. What was that girl's name? Crystal or something? I can't even remember, Eva said. And suddenly the time that had been so cold to her, the abstraction of the years that had meant so little, all of it could be felt. It seemed as real as her own body. Theirs was a story. And whether good or sad or whatever it was, it didn't so much matter as long as it was a story to her. And that made it something real. Bo had turned to look into the lit rooms of the house. He's done a pretty nice job with this place. Yeah, he has, she said. A breeze stirred in the drying leaves, the sound starting off across the field. Eva stood very still and listened as it drew near, and she could hear how it carried another sound inside it, the faint sound of howling, the wildness of something out there running its course. Thanks.